0: Welcome to Cathedral of the Rockies Amity Podcast. My name is Tyler, and I work here at Cathedral of the Rockies with Pastor Ben Kramer. Being brought to you today is part two of our four-week class on the Book of Revelation. First off, I had some technical issues early on, so I actually missed some of the recording in the first part of the audio. So we'll start off with Ben explaining the context and interpretation of the white stone mentioned early in Revelation. This leads into a broader discussion, which is where the recording will start off. Second, I am uploading these recordings as we do the class, so if you are listening to this in real time, which is during the current season of Lent in the year 2023, you can actually join us for our last two classes live on Zoom if you'd like to as well. I'll have the Zoom registration link in the show notes, and this just kind of provides an opportunity for you to ask live questions uh, as we're doing the class. And then finally, Ben will mention a book during the class, so I will have a link to that book in the show notes if you'd like to check that out. With those things out of the way, enjoy part two of our class on the book of Revelation.
1: At the end of gladiatorial games, the person that was victorious in Rome, they would award the winner a white stone with their name inscribed on it, and that would actually give them citizenship in Rome and freedom from being in the gladiatorial games, right? And so for for John to write that, to say that Jesus would give you a stone with your name written on it, means that you were an honored citizen in the kingdom of God. Even if you were martyred, right? Going through the persecution that you're going through right now, you would receive that. You would be granted and guaranteed citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. So that one seems to carry the most wait, for me at least. But it, that that question for that verse is such a vital part of studying scripture. I think it, it communicates a vital lesson for us all that there can be a prism of interpretations based on just one little section like that, right? And so what it does for me is it compels me. I can't get too hung up on one verse at face value, especially in English, right? (laughs) We can't get hung up on one verse and one interpretation of it. We need to sit with it for a while and see all the varying degrees of how this verse has been interpreted so we can have a deeper understanding of scripture. Um, One of the churches that has always fascinated me is that you've heard of the snake handling churches, right? Yeah, all of you heard that? Where they take that one verse where Paul was bitten by a snake and wasn't, wasn't killed so literally that they actually worship with snakes in their churches. So I've been really convicted by that. So next Sunday, we're no. <laughs> But that's one example of how you can take a, a piece of scripture to its furthest extreme intent that it wasn't even intended to be in the first place, right? Um, And the book of Revelation is a perfect example of that, because if there's any book in the Bible that's been taken super extreme, it's the book of Revelation. Did you have a question? Sure. Yeah, so uh, the question is, for those of you online as well, um, who's like the prevailing authority on how a text should be interpreted, right? Kind of like the lake of fire that we talked about last class, Well, it's, again, it's a complicated question because there's kind of a, if we could break it down to two, I like really either or understandings, you could break it down to two sides. It's what did the author mean, but what's the prevailing interpretation too, right? And we're talking about a text that was written in 60 AD, right? That's a, that's a long, yeah, it's a long time ago. Yeah. So they may have written something. It's, it's, something that we encounter with Paul's letters too imagine i'm writing an email to sue right and sue and i are having a really deep spiritual conversation about the food pantry right and i tell her you know the 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 bananas shouldn't go in my office right they should go back with the rest of the bananas and sue's like i think the bananas should go in your office I'm really convicted that the banana should go in your office, right? Well, what if somebody breaks into our email 2,000 years later, and at this point, it's extolled as scripture, <laughs> and bananas no longer exist? And they didn't know what an office was because they all download things with the microchips in their brains. You know, it's like So much can happen in the world that what I was telling to Sue in 2023 is going to sound radically different in the year 4,000, right? So that, that's what we're encountering in the texts as well. So like when they're using symbols of their day, like fire, that was a, a prominent symbol in ancient Israel. So Israel started off as a, just a verbal, they passed down their scriptures for thousands of years, just by oral transmission. So the tribe of the Levites was their memory. They had to memorize everything and they would, they would pass their scripture on orally. Writing didn't even happen until like around, it was like, gosh, when did papyrus start? I, I don't remember. But writing is a new technology by the time the New Testament is written down, right? And so by the time they're writing these things down, they're writing down their symbols of what these things meant to their people. And so when a good scholar goes to scripture, they look at that historical context and said, what does fire mean to Israel? What did fire mean to John in, in, the, in 60 AD? And how can we extrapolate as, with as much as we can what fire should mean to us when we interpret it? Does that, does that make sense? Okay. So that is such an important question. And these are the questions that we should be asking when we approach scripture, who decided what this means and who decides how we together should interpret it. Cause so I don't know if you have noticed, but since the Protestant reformation, we all have our Bibles in our own hands, right? Which means before the, before the Bibles were printed off for everybody, there was one place where the Bible was interpreted. It's called the church. And this one educated ruling class interpreted the Bible for everyone else, right? And nothing bad ever happened. <laughs> everyone was happy. No, well, it was misused by those in power, right? And this was kind of the big thing that Martin Luther was, was raging against. They were selling indulgences to get people out of purgatory and misusing scripture. And he wrote 99 problems that he had with, with the church, right? 95 problems. But so today the problem is not, it isn't the lack of access to the Bible as it was back then, but we have too much access, right? I have the Bible opened in like five places right now on my screen, in my, like my, my physical Bible, in my office. I have six different interpretations in my office that I like. <laughs> there's many other interpretations too. So it almost feels like there's a flood of information. And so a gathering like this is actually really important so that we can do that together. Not so that you can come into this place and, by golly, Ben Kramer has the the right answer for everything, so we're going to have Ben Kramer's interpretation. No, Scripture was meant to be interpreted together. It was written by a community for a community, not so that one person will come along and say, this is the word of God, follow what I say about it, right? We're trying to discern that together because the Holy Spirit operates together in, in the collective body of Christ. So what we're going to do first is look at the big picture of the book of Revelation. And I really want to talk about the context of Rome, what they were facing and how it impacts us today. And then I want to look at the lion and the lamb next week. Cause I think that's one of the the, the, the most stark picture in the book of Revelation between Jesus being the lion or the lamb. Uh, in the next few chapters, and how that should shape our view of, of violence, because the Book of Revelation is a really violent book. Have you noticed that before? <laughs> so, what do we do as Christians when we look at the the violence of the text? And then we're going to look at the new creation uh, as our final as our final week together. So today, I want to look at the at the big picture here, and I and I brought I broke the the book down into about four four sections. Um, And this is according to uh, several scholars that I've, that I've followed along with this. Go to the next one. Um, Next one. So revelation, which we just read revelation chapters one through three. This is the opening vision. John is writing the opening vision of the risen Lord and what Christ is, is conveying to him. And then John seven pastoral prophetic messages to the churches. And we read all of that um, last last week. You can go to the next one, Tyler. And the next section is chapters four through five. And what John is talking about is the central and centering vision of God and the Lamb. So as you read through those chapters, you're really going to see uh, John talking about who Jesus is as the Lamb and the Lamb's relationship to God, and how God's kingdom, God's vision, God's desire for the world is shown f- specifically through the way that Jesus is as the Lamb. And then the next section is Revelation 6 through 20, and this is what I like to call the marathon chapters, because it is just one brutal judgment after another. And you're just like trying to get through from six to 20 is the vision of the judgment of God. But what is so important are these interludes. So we, we all saw how important seven was right at the beginning, right? There's seven lampstands, seven churches. Uh, John emphasizes seven from the beginning and all throughout the text, but John does something else really brilliant too. Every seven chapters, there's an intermission. <laughs> there's an, yeah. So when you get to the seventh chapter in each one, especially six through 20, he stops at chapter seven and breaks down what he just said. So it's an important thing to remember, especially like the seven trumpets, there's the seven plagues, there's the four horsemen, um, there's the seven bowls of wrath at the end. But as he gets to the seventh part of that, he stops with this interlude. And describes what he is talking about. So he gives you a commentary on how, well, he gives the church the commentary that he's writing to of how to understand what he's saying. And so the relationship between the vision of the judgment of God and then his interlude or commentary is such an important part and often missed when we read the book of revelation. And and then the last part is revelation 21 through 22. And that's when you can take a really deep breath and just breathe in because it's the final vision of the new creation. It's the new Jerusalem coming down to earth and everything is made whole. There's no tears. There's no hunger. There's no starvation. All is made whole and all of God is in all of creation. And then you see the, the lamb with God in all things. Right. And that, so those are the really big picture, um, view of of the book of revelation. So tonight I really want to talk about Rome and what um, what the churches were facing and I'd love to start by someone um, let me read actually right after he um, talks to the uh, the seven churches and I just want to read a little bit of Revelation chapter 4. Uh, the throne in heaven, and so remember, he's just spoken to all seven churches, given them pastoral warnings. There was, there was uh, one church he didn't say anything good about. You remember what that was? Yeah, the lukewarm, the church in Laodicea. He didn't say one positive thing about that church. Yeah, it was it was these guys over here, um, and the smarna in philadelphia he didn't say one bad thing about and so he is this whole and i can't emphasize this enough the, the all of what he says later on is him trying to express to them the importance of faithfulness in the context of where they are and he's using very stark symbols that his first audience would know from the jewish context Um, and from the Roman context. Before we move on, write this down as homework. I know you love homework. Read the book of Zechariah. John the Revelator um, uses images from the book of Daniel, Zechariah, and Isaiah, and Ezekiel the most. But the most book he uses from is Zechariah. And it's, it's a short prophetic text in the Old Testament. But as you read through the book of Zechariah, you're going to be like, huh, these images show up a lot in the book of Revelation. And what John is doing here is something that we often forget is that the church didn't just start off as like, okay, Christ died, Christ rose again, now we're all Christians. It's a Jewish movement, Right. A Jewish movement that's following this Jewish rabbi named Jesus, and Christianity started to evolve out of that, right? So they would meet for a Sabbath worship on Saturdays, like faithful Jews in the synagogue, and then they would meet for worship on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection, this new movement, right? And so Jesus, uh, John is using very stark Jewish symbols from the old Testament, especially to then convey what's going on in the Roman context of, of their time. So remembering all of that, just listen to a few of these words. I may stop uh, halfway through, but I just want us to get, uh, the, the picture of where John is heading here. This is revelation chapter four, verse one. After this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So John is wanting us to use our imagination here. What do you imagine when I say, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this? What goes into your mind? Future time. Okay. Who is saying this to John? Jesus, okay. So when he's saying, come up here and and I'll show you where is here Heaven, right? right? And so John is now being brought into the throne room of God. like this is this is a pretty big deal, right? <laughs> um, and so he's saying this uh, and writing this down. At once I was in the spirit. So the spirit is taking him there. And there before me was a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby. A rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. This is a beautiful place. (laughs) Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on them were 24 elders how many disciples were there how many how many tribes why do we get 24 right it's the, right it's coincidence right <laughs> right it's john is all about showing pictures of completion right so the 24 tribes of the, the 24 12 tribes of israel 12 12 apostles 12 disciples brought in unity in this throne room right and they were dressed in white again what does white mean and crowns of gold what does gold mean royalty right See, so you're all going to be experts in revelation at the end from the throne came flashing of lightning rumblings and peals of thunder in front of the throne seven lamps were blazing these are the seven spirits of god seven meaning completion I'm trying to get out of the sun here from the throne came peals of thunder seven spirits. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, a clear as crystal in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox and the third had a face like a man and the fourth, like a flying evil eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him and sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So what do you think the first audience, those churches would have thought when they heard this description? And granted, all of these churches know the scriptures really well, right? They are there to worship God. They understand the Old Testament, the Torah, like the prophets. What sort of things would come to mind as this letter? And remember, this scroll is being read to every single church right? And then they pack it up, go to the next church, and they read it aloud. Something I forgot last, last week. Imagine you're at Laodicea. He left Laodicea to the end, I think out of compassion, because every church would hear about every other church. So they go to the first church, read the whole scroll, and they read it aloud. Then they go to the next church. So they all are aware of each other, too right so in this description of the throne room who do you think john uh, johns churches would what do you think johns churches would think about what came to your mind as as i was speaking those words of all all seeing right that's very very good absolutely the description here is that what comes to mind when i say the word angel the six wings with eyes all over is that what you put on the top of your christmas tree at christmas that kind of thing. I had a a seminary friend send me if people actually looked at biblical looking angels, and it was like this angel covered with eyes, and it was really creepy, like just a giant eye with six wings, right? But what John is getting here, part of what John is doing with these creatures, because there's an ox, there's, you know, they're different kind of animals too, but they're all kind of this amalgamation of animals that we know with wings and things like that. John is showing all of creation pointing to God and worshiping God in the throne room, right? Um, All of animal kingdom, all of the cosmos, everything has eyes that are pointing and seeing to God. And just like Linda said, they're also representing God's ability to see all of creation as well. Um, So that's that's a little bit of what John is trying to uh, convey by what he witnessed in this throne room. You're also hearing very very clear Christian messages that he ends it with what the gospel of John says that in and through Christ, all things were created, move and have their being. Right. And that's the way he ends this too. But John is also trying to show how God's throne room is at the center of all things. What Israel was the 12 thrones, what the apostles were, the the 12, the 12 thrones there, the 24 thrones around, Uh, the throne room there. He's trying to show that God is at the center of all that the churches have been worshiping and waiting for. So he's starting off with a a deep message of hope that this God that you've worshiped, I have been there. And I see Christ. I see God there in this throne room and all of creation all of the people that you respect and admire from the past and all the disciples that have established these churches, their thrones are there and they're worshiping this God. Even now there's worship taking place and God is on the move for you. So continue to be faithful in your worship of this God. Starting off with just an incredible picture of everything being unified, even in the throne room of God, that anticipation that that holiness of God, that beauty of God is going to break forth into the, into the world um, ahead. And so then revelation chapter six, which I just pointed out uh, starts this vision of, of, um, of judgment and with the interludes there. Um, And what, what I really want to, we're going to get into that, I think, next week, the seals and things like that. But John experiences that there's this, sea, this scroll that has seven seals on it. and We're all pretty aware of that. But no one can open that seven seal. And that scroll is a symbol, again, reading the, the book of Daniel can really help with that because that scroll shows up in Daniel. And so John is using, again, something that these churches would know that even in, this, in the book of Daniel, that scroll can't be open. And there's this question, who's going to be able to open this scroll? And there are seven seals on it. Why? Seven? Completion, right? And it's to show the judgment of God. Now, there's a group of people who will interpret the judgment of God as some future literal event. I don't find that helpful a helpful interpretation what i really feel like john is is communicating here and what jesus is expressing to john is that god's judgment through all of human history right that is applying to the present moment of these churches and that's something that can be helpful for us as well so it's all of human history laid out in one scroll and God's divine work to bring all things to completion, which is hence that number of seven, right? But then, and I know you guys know this, who is the only one that's able to open the scroll that John finally sees? No one in the throne room. No, nobody on the 24 thrones can open the scroll. Um, there's no one around, even in the high, this high heaven where John is, that can open the scroll. But then John turns and sees what? He hears what? He hears a lion, right? He's like, who can open the scroll? God says from the throne. And he hears a roaring lion, the lion of Judah. But then he turns and sees what? A slaughtered lion. That to me, and we're going to get into this next week, but I, I'm going to blow the secret already. That to me is like, if you're going to interpret the rest of the book of Revelation, John is giving you, John is giving you the lens to see what he means through this encounter. He hears this being that has the power of the lion of Judah, a predator, but then turns and sees the slaughtered lamb. (laughs) And this is Philippians 2. Although Jesus had all equality with God, he didn't see power with God as something to be exploited, but he humbled himself even to the point of death, death on a cross, Paul says. So Jesus didn't use his power like a predator, like a lion, to destroy the world, to bring vengeance to the world, to bend it to its will. Jesus gave himself out of love for the world. And it is through that love, that self-sacrificial love, that he is even able to open this scroll that was foretold in Daniel. Right. So that's why he can open the scroll. And part of that beauty there is that who took all of God's judgment upon God's upon himself, all of the judgment for sin, the carnage and evil in the world. Jesus took it upon himself on the cross. Right. And that's essentially what we Christians confess because Jesus is fully God and fully human. What was meant for humanity's end? Death. Well, the world was doomed for chaos, carnage, and death, futility for the rest of, of existence. God took upon God's self to save the world, to stop that endless cycle of sin, death, and violence, right? And because of that, and that's why the Lamb is opening the scroll, because the Lamb took on all of that judgment, Right? So we can't forget that as we're reading this judgment, the seven bowls of wrath being poured out on, on, on the planet and all of these things. This is something that Christ took upon himself as well, so that the world would not have to endure this pain and suffering any longer. So This is really, really crucial. So what John is really setting up here, we learned in the churches last time, that they're in this very specific context. There's rich churches, there's poor churches, but they're all kind of in this context of Rome. And what we talked about last time is that there's a a lot of these guilds that you would have to be a part of to have gainful employment, to provide for your family, right? Um, But these guilds required you to compromise your faith. It would be like, um, anyone here work at Micron? No Micron work? Okay. We're safe it. So it'd be like if you're working at Micron, and every time you went to to punch in, they they made you give a sacrifice to Zeus. Like to work at Micron. You really do need to make a sacrifice or pay homage or, or give something to Zeus, right? So to be part of these guilds, if you were a blacksmith or a baker or a clothes maker or a potter, you would have to. Rome was so syncretist in its worship of these gods that to do this work in the world, you had to give glory and honor to God. And one of those gods' name was Domitian. We learned about Domitian last time, right? The emperor of Rome. Do you know what was written on the coins in Rome for both Emperor Nero, Caesar Nero, and Domitian? It said, Domitian, son of the gods. So imagine now you have this ragtag group of people who worship this radical rabbi in who was crucified by Rome, and they're saying that he is the son of God. You think that's going to cause some problems in an empire where they believe the emperor himself is the true son of the gods, right? And so they have this deeply conflicting message. There is no Lord but Jesus. Jesus is Lord. And Rome is saying, there's no Lord but Caesar. Caesar is Lord, that those two groups may not get along and they might build a coliseum and they may not treat each other very well. Like we see that history play out, especially with, uh, with Julius Caesar. He was the worst persecutor of Christians. And now they're in the time of Domitian who's carrying that forward still as well. One of the things to, to really remember about these churches in this context is there's a deep fear of persecution right now. What, when John is writing this letter, there is uh, Antipas of Pergamum. So one of the members of the church of Pergamum is the only one that, we, that is recorded that we know of in the book of Revelation that was persecuted as a Christian. But we can even look to John himself. John is exiled. Why? <laughs> because he was proclaiming Christ as Lord in an empire that doesn't believe any other Lord is Caesar. So he's exiled to this island as well. Sure. Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good question. With the change in administration, Julius Caesar was a ruthless dictator, but Domitian, even though he was still persecuting Christians, he took a, a less harsh approach. So where, he, where Caesar was lighting Christians on fire for his dinner parties, Domitian was just exiling them and getting rid of them and 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 not not necessarily causing as much bloodshed as his predecessor but still was very much against christians was just not taking as a heavy-handed approach to them but there's this deep fear like just imagine if your religion was tied to your well-being the welfare of your family and your friends were dying for their faith right what Jesus has given, this vision that John is getting from the throne room, there's two main components that are, are really, really important in the midst of this persecution. We talked about prophecy last time. And remember, prophets, when they gave their message, was for wisdom, to give guidance in that time, but also to remain faithful or else this is going to be the outcome. And we see that definitely in the book of Revelation. There's this desire to say, stay faithful, even in the midst of persecution, because this will be your reward. This new heaven and new earth, we're almost there. God is culminating history to redeem and renew all things. This is how bad it's going to get. It's going to, it might even get worse, but stay the course, stay faithful, because this is going to be, it's worth it. Right? It is worth it to, to even endure this great suffering because the Lord is on your side. right? And then he gives him this incredible theology throughout the book of Revelation about the embodiment of the lamb. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. The way of the lamb is a very specific way of being in the world. The lamb was crucified for being who he was, the son of God. And the disciples will also endure similar persecution in the world for pursuing his nonviolent, humble, compassionate, self-sacrificing way of the world. So this comparison of the lamb and the beast are polar opposites if you haven't caught that already, right? right? And so all through the book of Revelation, you're going to see this comparison of the way of the lamb and the way of the beast. And John here, his prophetic message of wisdom and guidance is to say, stay faithful to the way of the lamb. No matter how appealing or coercive or violent the way of the beast may be, and the beast is Rome, the beast is Domitian, the beast is the emperor, right? It looks a lot like Babylon. It acts like Babylon. And any nation in the world today that acts like Rome back then or Babylon back then, that is the beast, Right? So it doesn't just apply in the book of Revelation. We can actually take what John is saying about the beast to Rome and say, what other nations in the world are acting like Rome did back then? Where all of their economy and their entire military force is tied to this one central mission in the world and requires absolute allegiance from their people to follow in the way of the beast right? So John, in the midst of that context, is saying, stay faithful to the way of the Lamb. And so, and, and so the other one, it's, there's three Ps, if you want to write this down, three Ps that really help you. Prophecy, which is the opening and what John is trying to do, the guidance, the, um, the outcomes of this faithfulness. The context of persecution Knowing that these churches are under really, really strong persecution from the empire that they're dwelling in, and then the message of perseverance. If there's anything that you can remember about the Book of Revelation, it's it is a call to remain faithful. Discipleship—that's the whole goal of the Book of Revelation. It's not future foretelling. It's not a a crack code that if you get it just right, you're going to know when Jesus returns. No. It's this call to be steadfastly faithful to the way of the Lamb in the world. And my friends, I just to get a little personal here, I was terrified of the book of Revelation when I went to seminary. Like I told you, I grew up with the Left Behind series. That's all I knew of the book of Revelation. And the movies and the books, they just filled me with nightmares, and I never wanted to think about it, Right? But when I finally got to the book and actually read it for myself and had really a lot smarter people than me help me read it, right? It became one of the most beautifully compelling and necessary and urgent books for our time today. Because there's no other real book of the Bible that kind of has a modern empire like Rome. Assyria is an ancient empire, right? Rome is a lot more modern in, in, in the realm of history, right, than Assyria or Egypt. Those are ancient empires. We model a lot of our world still today from Rome, right? There, in fact, we still haven't met some of the technological feats of Rome, in the modern world today that they had, like the aqueducts systems, their military force, like they were mining in parts of the world that we had thought we hadn't even discovered yet, right? Leveling mountains to continue to propel their empire. They had a global empire and they wanted to take over the world, right? And so we, especially those of us who live in the Western world, like Europe, the United States, Canada, we are part of a global empire as well, right? Our economy and the military might of our nation asks for a certain kind of allegiance, right? Who grew up pledging allegiance to something? <laughs> Covering your heart. So like these things are, have central questions for us. As the Church today, in the empires, are we aware of the the way our empires act like a beast in the world, and how are we as Christians faithful to the way of the Lamb in our world today? I think through especially um, in this next chapter when he's un- opening the seven scrolls, the seven seals of this scroll, what John is asking for from these churches is that even though the beast seems like it's going to devour you and it may even kill you remember that it killed the one you called lord as well who crucified jesus rome he was a <laughs> he was a nonviolent teacher from a backwater town of nazareth and because of his radical message of forgiveness and his incl- inclusion of people that they thought shouldn't be included in the message of God, got him killed. Saw him is a threat. You don't go into the temple and upend three days of business and not get the local authorities raising their eyebrows at you, right? He had such an extreme love for the poor, the sick, the disenfranchised, That he was actually gaining such a big movement that he became a threat to the status quo. He became a threat to the empire. But this is the radical message of the book of Revelation and the gospel as a whole. Because of how he laid down his life, did we stop hearing about him? 2,000-plus years later, we're still talking about this backwater rabbi from a backwater town who loved so radically and forgave so extreme that he became a threat to the ways of the beast of the world and that the beast devoured him to silence and suppress his voice. Did his movement stop? It exploded Even in a place that had a colosseum, which business was built on devouring Christians for entertainment. And the church exploded. Why? Because it accepted the people the empire and the beast would not accept as people. It had such extreme love for the poor, their enemies, that the church just grew. Because they helped each other. They fed each other. They sustained one another. And Rome just couldn't get how a people could love with such radical forgiveness, even their enemies, that they would die with joy in the Colosseum. That's something that just baffles the empire, right? And so the message of the book of Revelation is that even if they martyr you, there's a section in the book of Revelation that when they died, the martyrs died, the nation started to repent because of their example of Jesus. That self-sacrificial love in the world that even got them killed, it made the empire say, you know what? This is wrong. What we're doing to these people, these innocent people, is wrong. So John is saying, even if you die, (laughs) this message of the Lamb is worth even giving your life for, because it's going to bring transformation of the world. Uh, We just have a a few minutes left, and I want to leave some time for for questions. We're going to get into this beautiful picture of the lion and the lamb, and there's a lot there, especially in relationship to violence, like the Battle of Armageddon, right? We hear about that battle a lot, Um, a lot of the the carnage that takes place in the book of Revelation. Now, I can't wait to talk about that next week. But is there any interpretive questions like the white stone tonight that you'd want me to look up for next time? Or do you have any just general questions that we could talk about for a little bit? Yeah, George. Well, you know, George, you've raised an interesting question because I think, I think it depends. So the, the question that George is asking is each generation thinks that they've unlocked the message of the book of Revelation. And I wouldn't say for me, I don't think I've unlocked any secret I think I've arrived at the point that there really is no secret to the book of Revelation. It's actually inviting us to continue to ponder and interpret like we're doing here today, right? I think there's this notion that there is some secret to unlock, and that kind of makes it mysterious, and so we don't really dive in, right? But we're trying to dive in to really understand some of its mysteries deeper. But I think depending on the Christian tradition, we could put it that way, because there's over 200 different Christian traditions in the United States alone, because the Bible is clear. It says one thing that we all agree on, right? <laughs> so, depending on your tradition, it's going to approach books like the Book of Revelation in a very different way. Um, for example, the early church martyrs. Like, if you have you heard the book, um, the patient ferment of the early church. It is it's very thick, but it is so good. It's, the full title is this. If this doesn't compel you to read it, then I'm sorry. But the, the title is The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, The Unlikely Rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire. It is such a good book because it talks about the history of the early church and the martyrs, where this book of Revelation comes from, right? It's so good. But Justin the martyr, he would read the book of revelation as to continue his call to be a nonviolent presence in the world, because we're called to walk in the way of the lamb. Um, And let me build on that just a little bit. Uh, John, there's this, there's this narrative throughout the book of revelation where John will hear something and then he turns and sees something different. So he hears the lion and then sees the lamb, but then he hears the 144,000, which is a military unit number for Rome. That's a legion, right? So he hears 144,000, army of the Lord. And then he turns, and this just like, it should give you goosebumps every time. He hears the army, this legion of soldiers marching, and he turns and sees every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every woman, every child, marching, following the lamb, unarmed. This is the battle of Armageddon. Like, you need to get, but they're getting ready to follow the way of the lamb, who would rather die for his enemies than kill them. And so you see the 144,000. He hears the army, but then he turns and sees the way of the lamb, right? (laughs) Powerful, powerful messages uh, in the book of Revelation. So Every generation approaches it, and I think sometimes they get caught up again on certain parts of the text, like Jesus riding in on the white horse, armed to the teeth. One of the most beautiful parts of that section is Jesus arrives on the scene on his horse, and his robe is already covered in blood. The conflict hasn't even started. So your, your mind is supposed to say, whose blood is that? It's his. He's already given his life for the world. He's not there to shed blood. The the thing that is sharper than any double-edged sword is the word that comes from his mouth. And in Revelation 19, and I'm jumping ahead, but we'll repeat this again because it's so good. Revelation 19, Jesus shows up on the white horse and he is the legions of angel armies behind him, the 144,000, and the angels are armed to the teeth, just decked out, right? And guess what they do? nothing. The battle of Armageddon is not actually a battle. Jesus ends the tyranny of evil, sin, and death, Satan, demons, evil, everything that breaks creation apart the same way that God created. With what? My friends, it is a fragile God that needs weapons and armies to do its bidding. Our God is a God that ends and begins worlds with the word. The word made flesh. Jesus returns and ends the tyranny of all that brings calamity and chaos to the world. That is power. That is power. Doesn't need a legion of angel armies to fight his battles. He ends it with his love. The blood that was soaked in his his robe. Any other questions? You only get one time to hear it, Joy. (laughs) It's the patient ferment of the early church, the unlikely rise of Christianity in the Roman empire. And if you get through it by next class, I'm going to give you a sheet of brownies. Katrina, I think that hits at the heart of what I think is really important about the book of revelation, that if we're reading prophecy correctly, like you just said, we are seeing John's prophetic warnings and messages to the churches of that time living in that empire. Then once we hear that lesson clearly, we can then see how it applies to us today. And I really do think that the book of Revelation has some direct parallels of how beasts of the world, empires and their leaders, are oppressing the poor, the marginalized. They're using their economy and the military force to enforce their status quo. And it doesn't include a lot of people. The unfortunate reality of our world today is that because of some guy named Emperor Constantine, anybody heard of his name before? who came along after three centuries of the church being persecuted, marginalized. And by the year 315 or so, get this. And this is something I love as a Methodist to bring up because it's like, ooh, there we were in, in church history. We can point back even to the year 300. And there were Methodists. They didn't know they were Methodists then. <laughs> but they. No, I'm just kidding. But the early church was... Not only ordaining women as pastors, but as priests and as bishops. Bishops in the Catholic Church. Any Catholics? It, in the Catholic Church, what would be known as the Catholic Church later on, right? They were ordaining. They were the most like, radically inclusive, Like started social programs in Rome, hospital systems, food to feed the poor. They were just incredible. Constantine came along and said Rome has persecuted Christians for long enough Rome will now be Christian you had to be baptized a Christian to be a Roman citizen at that point cuz he he claims to have a religious conversion all these things but it became kind of known that it was politically advantageous for him to become Christian because there were some powerful Christians at that time as well. So it just kind of worked better. If he became a Christian, Rome became Christian. And there's this quote, and I'm forgetting the name of this historian, but he said it so well. Before Constantine, it took courage to be a Christian. After Constantine, it took courage to be a pagan because Christianity had crawled in bed with the empire. Christianity started to become the empire. And it was from Constantine on that the Holy Roman Empire turned into the Great British Empire later on. The slave trade came from that. Columbus with the Spanish Inquisitions. The genocide of... Native American people. And there's always this subversive movement that was critiquing, subversive movement of Christianity that says, hey, we are not the empire. (laughs) Why are you acting this way? This is not the gospel. This is not the way of the lamb. You are actually crawling in bed with the beast. Didn't you read the book of Revelation where the The prostitute was sitting on top of of Babylon, and you've crawled into bed with her. That's what Revelation is talking about. You've crawled into bed with the beast. And so now we have 1,500 years of history where Christianity has been in this place of privilege and power and has gotten tangled up with religious nationalism and white supremacy and things that we're still dealing with, and the patriarchy. Like, notice how women weren't in leadership after Constantine came along. I wonder why, because the gospel said not to? No, the patriarchy said not to, and we made the patriarchy the gospel, right? So when we crawl into these things and power becomes more important than the way of the gospel, the book of Revelation comes along and says, what ways are you acting like the beast? What ways are you using your power, your privilege, your money, your economy like the beast rather than the way of the lamb? And so, Katrina, like, I think it has powerful significance for our time today. If we would just take the time to read it as a call to repentance for ourselves, especially Christians in the Western world who have the majority of the positions of power today. I think I just gave, like, the whole class in the last, like, five minutes. (laughs) It's right. I start preaching. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's recorded. Yeah. It's going to go out. Um, Thank you so much for being here. It's a joy. Like this is why I became a pastor because I want to sit down, read scripture with my friends (laughs) and, and really explore the depths of something like this. Next week we're going to look at that relationship of Jesus being the lion and the lamb and how other places in the book of Revelation should be interpreted Away from the lens of violence that it's commonly interpreted in. All right, um, let me pray for us before we before we go. Lord God, I thank you so much for these people. Thank you for all who joined this place. And I pray, Lord God, I can get I can get really passionate about things, but I pray, Lord, that um, your spirit would just. Uh, shape everything that was heard and said tonight, and that if there was anything more of Ben than there was of you, uh, would your would your grace just come in and, and fill in those areas, Lord God? I thank you for my friends who come in here and, and journey with me through this text, and I pray that you bless them as they go from this place and as we gather again in the future. In Christ's holy name, all God's people said, amen. amen.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to, we'd very much appreciate it if you would subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it. Also, if you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at amity.campus at That email will be in the show notes. Finally, as a smaller congregation, our budget is pretty tight. If you'd like to help out and donate to us, there is a link to do so in the show notes. Of course, no pressure, only if you're feeling called to give. But more income does mean possibly more content and better quality of content, as well as supporting our current ministries and those we'd like to expand on. Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day.